our sermon passage reading, the rest of it, is from Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. 
But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Follow your heart. It's a common phrase, right? A quick Google search this past week found that Follow Your Heart is a Disney on Ice show, a vegan and vegetarian food company, a yoga studio, and a hit song by the Scorpions. It's a motto our world loves. Your heart is rarely wrong, so follow it. But as we come to our next study in the book of Exodus this morning, we see up close the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. If you remember Exodus, it's a story of God's people, Israel, in slavery to Egypt about 3,500 years ago. And last week, we saw Pharaoh's resistance to God's command to let Israel go. We saw God then begin a strike or series of strikes on Egypt so that they would know him as the one true God. And the passages we've read this morning from Exodus 9 and 10, we see God's signs continue and steadily grow more intense. We see God bring a plague on Egypt's livestock, send a disease of boils on Egypt's people and animals, rain hail down on their crops, send an attack of locusts, and then bring this palpable darkness. And last week, we, learnt, we used these uh, narrative of these plagues to focus especially on God's role. God's role in judgment, salvation, and sovereignty in all of this. But one of the things we said we would focus a little bit more on this week, and we will, is Pharaoh's role in all of this. Pharaoh, the so-called God of Egypt, is coming face-to-face with Yahweh, the God of Israel, in this, what we've called, a battle of gods. But what's going on in Pharaoh's heart? What's the purpose of this battle? Well, in the passages which Stan and Daniel have read for us so well this morning, let's see two things. First, Pharaoh's hard heart, and then God's good plan. So first, Pharaoh's hard heart. So back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, God had spoken to Moses and said, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then in chapter 5, we saw Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh and demand Israel to be released in accordance with God's command. And do you remember how Pharaoh responded? Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh's ignorant of who Yahweh is. Yahweh, the personal name of the God of Israel, shown in your text as Lord, all caps. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So he's ignorant of who this Yahweh is, but even more than that, he's indignant about who this Yahweh is. He's not going to obey this so-called God of the people that he enslaves. Later in chapter 7, verse 3, God again says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh won't listen to you. And so with this backdrop... As the narrative of God's signs and wonders begin to unfold, we see happen exactly what God had said would happen. 
Chapter 7, verse 13, after Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs of the magicians, we see, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Chapter 7, verse 22, after the water turned to blood, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Chapter 8, verse 15, after the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And this trend continues into our passage this morning. So after the the livestock, for example, the first plague we read about today are struck with with this devastating sickness, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Indeed, if you look after every single one of these ten plagues, you'll see Pharaoh's heart is hard. There are times it looks like it's softening, but those times last never too long. So, back in chapter 8, verse 15, the, the frogs die out, and you got that gross kind of passage where they're heaping up all these dead frog bodies, and they're, sm- they're stinking out Egypt. But we read that when Pharaoh saw a respite, if you can call stinking piles of frogs a respite, he hardened his heart. And by the time the plague of hail comes here in chapter 9, Pharaoh has seen so much damage and again hardens his heart. You see a theme here. Look even in, in, in verse 14 above chapter 9. God ups the ante. He says he is. He says, for this time, I'm going to send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. God's saying it's getting worse, Pharaoh, and I'm, this is the first time God's assuring Pharaoh, his people, at least part of them, they're going to die. In his mercy, he warns Egyptians to get shelter or perish. And then comes this terrible strike on Egypt. And in, in verse 27, Pharaoh shows yet again this glimmer of weakness. Verse 27, he sends for Moses and Aaron. And he says, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He asks for mercy. And the Lord relents. But then verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So when we see this mention of Pharaoh's heart, what's being talked about, as one scholar has said, is the entire inner life of a person, including both Pharaoh's will and his mind. So Pharaoh, this this God ruler of Egypt, is self-consciously, willfully, stubbornly setting himself up against Yahweh. You see that in chapter 9, verse 17. God says to Pharaoh, you're still exalting yourself against my people and won't let them go. And then in chapter 10, verse 3, how long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? God had told Pharaoh that, or told Moses, he would harden Pharaoh's heart, but that in no way, in no way diminishes Pharaoh's very real self-conscious hatred of Yahweh. Because he has everything to lose. He has everything to lose if he capitulates to this God of the Hebrews. He loses his standing as the God of Egypt. He loses his slave workforce. He loses his pride. And so he's determined not to let God win. Uh, Exodus is written originally in in the language of Hebrew, and Throughout this narrative, there are three different words used to describe Pharaoh's hardness of heart, including words meaning strengthen or stiffen, harden or make heavy. But overall, the theme is the same. Pharaoh stubbornly decides he will not turn to God, even when there seems to be opportunity to do so, right? These plagues are not just judgments. They're warnings of future judgment. 
Pharaoh, look what just happened. If you're going to do this again and reject me, something else is going to happen. You must obey. You must repent. But he won't. Pharaoh is following his heart. And his heart is desperately sick with pride. Unwilling to bow before the one and only God. Church, we must focus in on this character of Pharaoh and see the desperate condition of fallen hearts apart from God's intervening grace. In our sin, we all want to be God, and we're going to fight tooth and nail in order to get that. We will stop at nothing to show we're the sovereigns of our lives, to show we're not weak. Our pride is legit. I wonder, do you see that tendency in your heart? Do you see how you're like Pharaoh? Even uh, Christians this morning, even in our lives that have been set free from bondage to sin, we still feel this temptation, don't we? Temptation daily to set ourselves up against God in some sort of sinful mutiny. Our repentance, our turning from sin to God, that's what repentance is, can still just prove fake. And can it, do you see that in your heart? I mean, Pharaoh here, he says a lot of good things at times, but then he reneges on those things when life gets easier. I don't know about you, Christian, but the same is true in my heart, often. Uh, Tony Marita, in his commentary on this book, writes, there is a difference in remorse and repentance. That wasn't his idea first. That was Paul's idea first, right? Well, God's idea first. So, Christian, as you're confronted with your sin, are, are you merely sad about the consequences it's had in your life? Uh, do, do you feel guilty but no love for God? Are you angry you got caught? That's not repentance. Repentance is being willing at all costs to cut that sin out of your life in order to turn more fully to Christ. So take a tip from Pharaoh and don't trick yourself into thinking you're repentant when all you are is remorseful. Tim Chester helpfully puts an analogy on it. He says, Pharaoh is a case study in the deceit of sin. It's like a slow-motion car crash that allows us to see a tragedy unfold. We want to step in and make it stop, but in the real-time action of our own lives, we ourselves, too, often get caught up in the insanity of sin. So, church, this example of Pharaoh calls us not to harden our hearts against God's commands, not to lie to ourselves and believe we can just kind of pick and choose what we want to obey. God demands our entire lives. Being a Christian means following Jesus as Lord, as Master, as do all our obedience. Our hearts are, are so inclined to look for a respite. To look for a break. When you think about it, when, when you feel really guilty and it's at the worst, you're like, oh, I'm just going to do anything I can to get away from this. I'm going to confess it all. I'm going to call my friend right now. And then you get that respite of conviction. You're just like, nah, next time. 
We're good at acting guilty when our sins become visible and then shrugging off that conviction when we feel okay again. The author of Hebrews writes, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And church, that's us. That's our task. As a community of believers, one of our tasks, one of our most serious tasks, is to know others well enough in the church, not everybody, but know others well enough to call them to true repentance, to call them not to harden their hearts, to call them to get beyond feeling sorry and to repentance. If you're struggling right now, as I have many times, with getting beyond that sorriness to actual desire to change, ask somebody you trust in the church. Ask them to pray for you. Because unless you are a whole lot more godly than I am, which many of you are, you're not going to make the decision on your own. You're always going to find a way out. Trust other believers to guide and guard your heart into true repentance. All right, so that's Pharaoh's hard heart. Let's look at God's good plan. And here we need to zoom out again and remember what we mentioned before. Pharaoh is indeed self-consciously and willfully opposed to the Lord. End of statement. His sin is his own sin, his own fault. He is God's enemy, and he wants to be God's enemy with all of his heart. But there's even more going on. Look in chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Seems like ultimately, above it all, the sovereign God of Israel is hardening the so-called sovereign God of Egypt's heart. And we see this all the way back in chapter 4, right? God promised this would happen. Now he's keeping that promise. So in chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord says, I have hardened his heart. In chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And again, I feel like I need to be clear. Pharaoh's sin is not from God. God has never created sin. But still, Pharaoh's hardness is part of God's plan. Why? Well, the key verses for us are right there in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. The Lord says to Pharaoh, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, even in the sinful rebellion of Pharaoh's hard heart, God is sovereign. He's over it all. He holds the hearts of kings in his hands. Like we sang earlier, Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. God has a purpose for these plagues. He has a purpose for hardening Pharaoh's heart, and it is so that everyone will know that he alone is the true God. 
so that his power is displayed on a magnificent scale unlike anything Egypt had ever seen before, so that his name would be broadcasted in Egypt and beyond, so that his glory would be communicated in Israel for generations, as you see in the first few verses of chapter 10. God's out for his own glory. He's out to show his majesty in both his judgment of Egypt and his salvation of Israel. That's his plan, and it's a good plan. Even in the wickedness of Pharaoh, God's glory will be shown. I mean, just look at the attack of hail in chapter 9. It's frightening. Thunder. Hail that's big enough to kill. Flashing fire. We use the word epic way too much in our culture. This is epic. This judgment is on a scale that breaks all records. As you see, nothing like this has happened in Egypt. This is indeed the one true God. This is the way he's going to be known and acknowledged by both his enemies and his people. He is Yahweh. There is no other. He is sovereign both over the forces of nature and over the forces of man's heart. But at this point, you're probably asking a question, and you won't be the first. And the question is, is this just? Is this fair? I'm sure Pharaoh is sinful in and of himself, but as we've been seeing, it seems like at an even deeper level, God is causing Pharaoh to be hardened so that ten whole plagues will come and destroy Egypt, so that God will be shown to be majestic. So, doesn't that seem like Pharaoh is being manipulated by God? As some have called Pharaoh a mere puppet in the hands of the master puppeteer. Is Pharaoh being used by God? Is it really God who's being evil here? Malevolent? I think we can read this passage and sincerely ask, Lord, why? Why would you show mercy to your people and not to Pharaoh? On the passage John read for us at the outset of our service, the Apostle Paul, centuries after Exodus, asked the very same question thinking about God's mercy that is displayed to some and not others. He writes in Romans chapter 9, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and this is right from our text in Exodus 9, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, but does that really help? I mean, we want to know, is there injustice? God chooses those he will have mercy on and those who he won't have mercy on. But that is injustice, it seems to us, doesn't it? 
I mean, from our vantage point, we have this view of what is fair, what is just, what is full of equality, and what that should look like. And I don't think this is it. I mean, if God didn't choose to show mercy to Pharaoh, then Pharaoh shouldn't be blamed for rejecting God, should he? I mean, God's the one who should be blamed. God's the one who's picking and choosing. Well, Paul anticipates that objection too. And he says, you're going to say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Exactly, Paul. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Pharaoh followed his heart and rejected God. And God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. Both are true. That's one author writes, Pharaoh freely chose to do what God had freely chosen he would do. And church, that's a hard truth for us this morning. But it's pretty clear from both Exodus 9 and Romans 9 that God has mercy on those he chooses. And it's some and it's not others. This shows his glory. It shows his sovereign majesty, both in the judgment of sin and the salvation of sinners. And so all salvation is by God's mercy, never able to be earned or deserved, only received. Is that fair? No. Not really. Because if we're really as sinful as the Bible says we are, and if God is really as holy as the Bible says he is, we should all be condemned like Pharaoh. Put under the plagues of judgment. That would be fair. That would be what our sin deserves. But in the height of his mercy, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and take that judgment on himself. Jesus came and died on the cross, taking our sin on himself, dying our death instead of us. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, see the sovereign mercy of God and do not harden your heart against it. Look to Christ and see what he has done. Turn from your sin. Repent and be saved. And find when God's judgment comes, you are sheltered under the wings of Christ. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, I'm sure you still have questions. I know I do. But might I suggest that even more deeply than your question, Lord, why didn't you choose to be merciful to Pharaoh? You ought to ask the question, Lord, why did you choose to be merciful to me? There's an old hymn that I love that pictures the the chosen of God coming to him at a feast and seeing all his grace and riches displayed on the dinner table. And the hymn writer writes, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice 
and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Well, this past week as I studied this passage, I was trying to think through all the objections that I know that we've had if we've studied this before, and what I was left with was just incredible awe. Just being overwhelmed to think that I'm here, able to delight in God, able to respond in repentance and faith to his call to new life, not because of me or anything in me, not because of the way I was raised, not because of my background, but solely by his mercy. I watched a documentary recently because I'm dorky like that. And there was a, a man who was talking about Romans 9, and he said, this is just his raw conversation, which I've cleaned up a little bit. I pulled the Bible out, and I went to Romans 9, and I read Romans 9. God is mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And I was sitting there, and I'm like, yo, this is so mean. And I cried. I was mad. I closed the Bible, I closed the book, and I remember just sitting there mad at God, literally mad at God at my kitchen table. And then I sat there and I said, but no, this is grace. Christian, perhaps this sounds strange to you, but it's right here in God's word. In your sin, you hated him. You were hardened to him, but because of Christ, because of his mercy, he chose to take that hard heart out of you and put in a heart of flesh, a heart soft to him. And that was all of grace. Church, do you see how we ought to be the humblest people on the planet? Any pride we have here at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church must disintegrate at the truth of this gospel. Why, Christian, why are you in God's camp and not infested with boils in Pharaoh's palace? Why are you here wanting God and not lost in sin? Why, why does Jesus seem increasingly beautiful to you and not the fleeting pleasures of this world? Because the judge has made a verdict that you're not guilty. Because Christ is taking your guilt for you. Because God has chosen to pour out his mercy on you and his wrath on Christ. Where in that gospel is room for pride? Nowhere. Church, our hearts ought to be so full of thankfulness and humility and awe at the grace of God that there's no room for any sort of arrogance. We will find ourselves only crying, I will not boast in anything. No gifts. No power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray and then go to the Lord's table together.
Lord, I'm undone by your word this morning. I don't know why you would choose to have mercy on me. And so we together as a church pray that we would be so moved by your mercy that our lives would just sing loudly of what you've done, that we would not hide it, but shout aloud your grace to us in Christ. And Lord, for those here or those we know and are praying for, who we find continually, stubbornly refusing your grace, we ask that you would extend the same mercy to them that you have to us. You would soften their hearts. You would draw them to yourself. You would save them for the glory of your own name's sake. You would save them so that your power is displayed right here in us. We pray this for our joy and the great glory of your eternal name. Amen.